Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you, we have a we have a great guest today. He's uh, he's such a talented musician. He's about to start a big tour with Foreigner, and he was in Dokken, and a band he I guess he just joined. They've been around. It's the third album, The Revolution Saints. Their album, Eagle Flight, comes out April 21st, and I heard he's a cello player, and my older sister was a cello player, and my guest is Jeff Pelson. How you doing, Jeff? Great, and how's your older sister doing? She was great. No, she played the cello, and I heard you played the cello, and you don't meet a lot of cello players. Yeah, well, I'm not a good cello player. I did play the cello. I ended up tr- uh, moving over to string bass in high school, but uh, but yes, I do play cello poorly, but to some degree. Now, tell me about the Revolution Saints. You Your album's coming out, and all... All three of you guys are just such busy workers. I mean, you have besides Farmer, you have a few other bands you produce, and it's like, how did you guys, how did this about come about? Because Dean, I guess, brought in two new members, and so how did it all happen? Well, um, basically, you know, Jack Blades and Doug Aldrich had been in the band, um, and they, for, for whatever reason, I think it's scheduling or whatever, they couldn't do it, so... Um, Serafino, the president of Frontiers Records, the label that we're on, um, I think it was his idea to bring Think Joel as well. They they just called and asked me if I'd be interested in doing it. And when I heard it was Joel and Dean, I said, of course, it's a no-brainer. So, yeah, so it just it just happened very quickly and organically. So how is that? You work with a few other bands, then you mesh into this other band, and it just for your sanity, because you also produce, how do you keep... How do you keep it all together? I mean, because you sit there, Farner, you're playing the classics. You know, I mean, I, I, my eighth grade graduation present, I got the first Farner album. And you play that, and you've been playing with them for almost 20 years. And the other bit, how do you, how do, you do it as a musician? How do you keep sane? How do I keep sane? Wow. Oh, I keep sane through meditation. Uh, but, uh, um, the, you know, the thing is, I don't... It's like people kind of envision that each band um, requires some different headspace, and it actually doesn't. You're you're a musician. You're playing music that you love, you know. So so whenever I'm whatever song I'm playing, I'm just I want to be a hundred percent into the song and giving my my best. Um, so I don't think of it like for this band I do this, for this band I do. Now when I'm producing, I yes I do have to think in terms of that because each band has to have its own sound. So that's a little bit different. Um, and when I'm producing, because I am sort of in charge on that level, it's it's very easy for me to see where the bands should be and what they should be doing and what the direction should be. Um, but when I'm playing, I'm just I'm just one of the guys and I'm just having fun playing whatever music we're doing. And and I don't have to keep anything straight. The music does it for me. Well, tell me about the new album. I mean, are you excited? I mean, it, it must be cool. I mean, you have the album and you have the tour and you know, your life. And you, I saw you're into yoga, which, you know, that's always good. My wife does yoga. I tried it once when I lived in L.A. and I went to a bad class. And I didn't know what I was a beginner's class. And I, I had no idea what they were doing. It was advanced. But tell me how exciting this new album is and, and tell me about the new album. Well, the new album called Eagle Flight comes out April 21st, like you said. Um yeah, I'm excited. I mean, the thing that really grabs you right away from this record is Dean's voice. His voice is just so incredible. Um, I mean, he gives me goosebumps. Every every line he sings practically gives me goosebumps. Uh, 
he's just a phenomenal singer. And I'm so glad that he's got this vehicle now because it's, um, it's, it, it's, he, he's just got one of those voices that should be out there making records, you know? Um, so I love the songs. I love the music. Joel plays just so brilliantly and inspired. Um, yeah, I'm excited because it's great music. And, you know, when, as long as great music is coming out, I'm a happy guy. Now, how did you start in music? I mean, you know, you're from Illinois. When What got you into music? As a kid, did you hear a certain song Beatles, or album? Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I was one of those. February 9th, 1964, in front of the TV. Um, yeah, and, and though I didn't start playing right away, I am absolutely convinced that the seed was planted that first night that I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan because that was like, that's what I want to do. I mean, you know, even I was six years old and I knew it. I just knew it. Um, I had an older sister who was already a big Beatles fan and my brother-in-law, who was only her boyfriend at the time, but they've been married now 56 years since. Um, they, uh, you know, they were big Beatles fans already. So by the time, now mind you, you know, I Want to Hold Your Hand kind of came out in December, but really it was January that it started getting known, you know, and people were just recovering from the Kennedy, you know, assassination. And, and, I, and I just remember the feeling of Beatlemania as it swelled over the country. It was just a great, great, incomparable thing. People today that didn't experience that have no concept of what it was like. It was because there's never been an act since that was that universally recognized and immediately changed everything. And I mean, there's, there's just been nothing like it. So I know the seed was planted that night. And again, I started playing years later, but that's why. What made you pick up an instrument years later? I mean, you know, the seed was planted, you know, you saw the, sure. the thing, but okay. what made you sit there and go, I'm going to pick. Well, I, I used to, um, a friend of mine and I used to go around on the school playground during like recess and we would sing this. It was a root beer commercial for a local root beer <laughs> that Graf's root beer in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I remember that. And, um, for some reason he and I would sing this commercial kind of, you know, kind of fun for, for fun. I, there was something funny about it, I guess. And we were trying to get attention. Anyway, some guys heard me and they said, Hey, we're starting a band. You want to sing? I was like, sure. And they go, but we also don't have a bass player. You want to play bass? I was like, sure. <laughs> so I had a paper out at the time. So I bought a $35 Tiesco Delray bass and a $35 Fender Princeton amp, uh, or no, Fender, no, Gibson Skylark amp. That was my first amp. And um, anyways, so I bought those for 35 bucks each from my paper route, and I started playing. That band never happened, but I did start playing. So then where do you go from there? Where do you, where do you start this career? I know you went to school for music, I believe, but where, where does this whole career, this lengthy, very successful career start? Well, okay, so, so right after I started playing, a year after I started playing, we ended up moving to the West Coast because my dad got transferred. And we moved to a very small town in the state of Washington. And it was very, very, I was, I felt very disoriented there. I mean, I was real. I felt like a total fish out of the water. So basically, music became my salvation. So during junior high and high school, I was in front of the turntable every single day for hours a day. That was my real hardcore training. Um, then, you know, I did go to the University of Washington for a couple of years, but 
you know, I didn't graduate and I wanted to play rock music. And, and you, especially back in the seventies, the university of Washington was very classical oriented, which I did want to learn, but not for a career. So, um, so then, I mean, I, w I was just able to, I started being in bands and, you know, one thing led to another and eventually I ended up in Dokken and there you go. What were some of the bands you were listening to? You said you were listening, studying, that was your thing. Who were some of the bands you were listening at that time? All the classics, you know, the, the Zeppelins, the per Deep Purples and the Sabbaths. But then I got into a real heavy duty progressive phase where I was really into Yes and Genesis and Gentle Giant, Neil P and all that stuff. Real hardcore, which was great for my bass playing. It was really, really taught me a lot about bass playing, which was great. Um, uh, and and it taught me a lot about music and composition and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, along the way, I mean, I had a Motown phase where I was really into James Jamerson. And I had an ACDC phase where I wanted to play as simple as Cliff and just, you know, I mean, all that stuff. So I, I just love the bass guitar. I really do. I, I love to play it. I love the feel of it. I love... The instruments, I love the smell of the wood, all of it. Um, so, you know, I was trained by the best, I th I'd say. What do you think makes a good bassist? Because I always say, you know, the bassist and the drummer are like baseball, like the shortstop and the second base. Without them, everything's going up the middle. They're the foundation, to me at least. What do you think makes a, a great bass player? Well, to me, a great bass player plays the right part for the song and has the right feel uh, and, and knows what not to play, <laughs> you know, because sometimes it's what you don't play that makes the part even cooler. Um, so, I mean, it's really, f feel is a big thing for me, the way, the way the bass feels. That's why, you know, like Cliff from ACDC, just his feel is so great. You know, it's, it's simple, but it's great. And not everybody can do that. You know, people think it's simple. No, you know, to have that, that great a feel all the time. You know, no, that's got to be, that's the internal clock working. Um, so it's a, it's mostly about feel, but then note selection is a big thing for me. And, you know, you have a like a Paul McCartney who just comes up with incredible bass parts. Chris Squire, amazingly creative bass parts. Um, but, you know, then there's James Jameson who just, you know, had this feel and great notes and just everything about what he did for the song just built the song up and made it even better. And to me, that's what you do as a bass player. You make the song better. Now, take me back to when you first moved to L.A. Because I lived in L.A. I moved in the late 90s, and I just moved back to New Jersey. So I missed that whole scene. I mean, I'll give it, you know, Gazzari's was closed when I was going. But, you know, you still had the, the main clubs. But tell me how you ended up in Dock. And, and when you went down there, were you, what kind of band were you looking to join? Well, when I moved to L.A., um, you know, I was like everybody else. I just wanted to make it. Um, the first thing I did was I, I joined a cover band cause I knew some people down there. Actually, no, I, I, I auditioned for a cover band and I got it the spring before I moved down and I came down and worked with them for a while. And then some friends of mine, Paul Taylor from winger, uh, Mark Nelson, who went on to be the head of Roland, but played with Nick Gilder and a bunch of other people, great friend and Rick White. Uh, and Amy Cannon, Amy Cannon is no longer with us, but she was one of the nasty habits with Motley Crue in the late 80s. Anyways, we so we had a band, which was, it was really a great cover band. Um, and then I found out about Dawkins through Mike Varney. Uh, Mike Varney was kind of the guy that everybody would call to get a gig back then. And Don Dawkins had called him and said, do you know of any singing bass players? And I just moved to L.A. 
So Mike gave him my name and Don called me and I went and met with him. And, you know, then they came out to see me play at a club and then they then we jammed and they offered me the gig. So it was it was a pretty simple process, but uh, definitely owe it to Mike Barney. What was that the scene like, though? Because I know you you evolved. You guys blew up. I mean, it's like the metal scene. And I love that music. I still do love that music. And I think anyone who's under 30 should listen to that music because it's great music. But what was the scene? I mean, is it is it as crazy as people said? I mean, putting the Absolutely. stuff up and stuff it like was, that? I mean, it was Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, it was, I mean, L.A. Yeah. I, so I moved to L.A. in 83, spring of 83. Um, and things were just starting to really take off for all the, the, the metal bands and all that kind of thing. And it was wild. I mean, it was just sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and it was wonderful. <laughs> now, how does it change your life when you're, you're, this is your dream, and all of a sudden, docking starts getting big? And, you know, I mean, some of the tours and just everything, videos. I mean, what is it like for you? Because you seem like a very grounded guy, and, you know, your background, you've been playing music all your life, but you also have that... Beatlemania, you have that in your mind, like, I want a part of that, that's something, you know, what was it like for you when you, when you guys first started touring, when your records started getting popular, how did you keep your shit together? Well, you know, the, the funny thing is with Dokken is we were such a slow build, and it took us a long time to really build up, you know, we, we did it the old-fashioned way, just by pure touring and just grinding it out there, so to us, it felt like it happened very slowly. Um, so it never got out of control. I mean, towards the end, you know, the the sex and drugs part might have gotten a little out of control. But um, but uh, no, it was a very slow build. So keeping it together was all about we wanted to just be better. You know, we wanted to we did want to make that big record and, you know, come up with those great songs and everything else. So we were very driven musically just to be better and better and better. Um, and fortunately, that held. Um, and I think that that's kind of why, to this day, there's some credibility to Dokken, because we did stay true to the music. Now, was there rivalries between the bands back then? Like, like you know, like did you, or were you all comrades? I, I used to do stand-up comedy, and we were all comrades. You know, we were, you go yeah. to a club, and if someone got a gig you didn't, it means you had to up your game because they were better. But was there rivalry I, back then? Sure, um, but... A lot of camaraderie as well. I mean, it was it was some serious. And remember, we had drugs involved, so there was a lot of friendships. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but uh, seriously, I, there were a lot of great friendships made out of that period. That you know, some to that last to this day. Um, but yeah, of course, it was rivalry. Of course, you know, you wanted your band to do the best, and you know, of course. Now, after Dawkins breaks up, what do you want to do? You know, you're you're the bassist. I know you're you've been connected, but what do you want to do when Dawkins breaks up? Are you lost, or do you say I know where I'm going to go? No, actually, I I thought I knew exactly where I was going because I I wanted to have my own band, originally called Flesh and Blood, and ended up being called War and Peace because we lost the name Flesh and Blood. Um, but uh, I wanted to sing in my own band, and and my original dream, I always envisioned. Me singing Michael Diamond, who was my songwriting partner in War and Peace, who also played bass in War and Peace. Um, so I, I wanted it to be Michael Diamond, myself, George, and Mick. That's what I envisioned. Um, when Dokken broke up, I think George and Mick were kind of lost for a little while. I think they were a little dazed. They were incommun incommunicado. I mean, we just... they just, It's like they dropped off the face of the earth for a few months there. So I started my... I got my band going. Um, and then 
then by the time they got lynch mob going i was already kind of doing my thing so um so i didn't do lynch mob but um but no i i i wanted to have a band full on now when did you start writing songs because i know you wrote a lot of when when did you when did you start putting the songwriting skill together knowing you could do it um well i mean you know i've been kind of doing it all all along you know i mean as a teenager i was writing songs and working i mean i i loved I went through my Todd Rundgren phase and my, you know, all this kind of thing. So, no, I've been writing since I was probably 14, you know, as far as, like, really trying to write. Um, by the time I was 15 or 16, I think I was starting to write. I, I mean, I have demos of some of the stuff. I was, I was writing songs. You know, they weren't the greatest, but some of them were actually pretty good for a 15-year-old kid. Um, and, um, you know, I've just been working on it ever since. Now... You're going along your career. When does Farner come about? Because were you a fan of theirs? Like, because you listen to a lot of music. Because oh, everyone loved Farner, yeah. and, and it always pisses me off that they're not in the Rock Roll Hall of Fame. I, I, I don't get that. I, I, they're they were like the, the biggest. Everyone. I'm I'm 58. Everyone had the first two Farner. Everyone. Like, if you didn't have that in your school, you were a nerd. Like, well, you don't have you don't love the first album. You don't have the Double Vision. So, when did you start listening to Farner? When did you be start? When when were you a younger age or? I listened to Foreigner as soon as it came out because, remember, I was a big progressive rock fan. So when Foreigner came out, I was attracted to them because of Ian McDonald, who was in the original Foreigner. And Ian had been in King Crimson, which was a band that I loved. And, you know, I was a huge fan of King Crimson. So I had heard that the guy from King Crimson has this new rock band. So that's how I got attracted to Foreigner. And then when I heard it, I was like, wow, it's like, hard rock but like with these big huge choruses and everything this is great and i loved it and i was a fan instantly love foreigner so what were you what were you doing before in that time frame when you were joined foreigner what were you doing at that point and then how did that lead to the audition right. i guess for foreigner or? all right well so yeah um no well um uh, basically in 2004 uh well I, I had done the movie rockstar with jason bonham in the year 2000 and when we were doing the movie, we got along well together. We played great together. Um, we even wrote a song together that it didn't make the movie, but it made the soundtrack record. Um, so uh, we there was there was a connection with Jason. So when he started working with Mick Jones in 2004, and they weren't really sure what it was going to be. Was it going to be Mick Jones' solo or whatever? Anyways, they called me up and they said, do you want to come down and play? So we did. And we had basically there was a there was a charity event. Um, so we went down and to, to play this charity event and we rehearsed for several days and during the course of playing these, uh, or doing rehearsing, it just, it just got really strong. Um, and after we did the show, Mick was like, no, nah, I want to do this again. So he decided to revamp Foreigner. Um, and it would, it was just an instantaneous thing. The chemistry was there. You could feel it. The first time we started playing, it was very electric. Um, and Mick was so inspired and there was just a fire going on that was great. And so that's what propelled it. So then when you join the band, you have to learn all this music. Now, what is it like? I mean, you seem very disciplined. Is it, is it hard to learn a bunch of, I mean, you're, you're learning a whole catalog. Yeah. But I mean, I'm, I'm learning songs that many of which I, I know in my head. So it was not difficult to learn. Um, it was a pleasure to learn. 
I love the bass parts on Foreigner. I mean, Rick Wills, the bass the guy that played on a lot of the records, I love his playing. Um, and, and, and in fact, you know, Rick comes out and jams with us occasionally, and I love it when he does. Um, so, no, it was a joy learning the songs. It was not a problem. It was something I loved doing. Now, what's it like? It's the final tour. What is, I mean, is that sort of, is that, does it make you sad or do you sit there and hope maybe down the road, maybe we'll, we'll do it again? Or what, what's going on with your head right now? It's bittersweet. You know, the band is sounding and playing amazing right now. You know, everybody gets along. I mean, it's kind of a dream band, really. Um, so it's, you know, I'm, yes, I'm going to miss it, but we want to go out while we're still on top. We don't want to start sucking and then stop. You know, we want to go out while we're strong. So I love that aspect. I look forward to not being on the road as much, um, with whatever I do. Um, but, uh, but yeah, of course it's bittersweet because the band is sounding so great right now. Now how much, how it must make you feel great. You guys are sold out a bunch of shows in Vegas. You're selling out around yeah. the tour. It must, and for Mick, it must be something that's really because he's been there the whole time. I mean, it must be something so special to him to one get guys that. I mean, I saw you guys at, in Camden uh, two or three years ago uh, at BBT, and you guys were tight. I mean, you guys were great, and it must be great for him to sit there and look at you guys like you're all comrades. I mean, you've been playing on there for almost twenty years. Most bands don't even last twenty years. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's a family. There's no question the, there's a foreigner family. It extends to management, extends to all the people in the band, extends to our crew. Um, and, you know, I, I can't speak for Mick, but I will tell you that I know that um, he has expressed many times how strongly he feels about everyone in the band. He loves all the guys. You know, he, he hand chose all of us. Uh, and he has never he's never expressed any regret about who he's chosen and i think he's i think he's grateful for this band i know i am um i think we all are um we are in a very lucky position we got these great songs great musicians and, and a great audience what more can you ask for now with doc and back to doc and when you guys you originally broke up then you got back together how did that happen because i always wonder when bands get back together it, it it's I know a lot of times bands break up because the record company is pushing you guys too much and put out the album, put out this, put out this, and you're together all the time. But how was how did you guys get? Well, why did you guys break up in the first place? Well, we broke up in the first place. I mean, you know, we weren't getting along great. I, I Don basically left the band in early '89, technically March of '89. He left the band. Um, and I think he left, I, I believe he felt that he could go on because he tried to go on. And when he got his deal with Geffen, he tried to be Doc in the band. And of course, we stopped him because he wasn't allowed to do that. So he became Don Dockin. But I think he left thinking he could take the name Dockin and do fine without us. And that didn't turn out to be the case. Um, so we broke up egos, most, mostly egos. I mean musically there was some differences but really it was more about egos than anything else then when we got we got back then in 94 when um uh, basically don and i had started writing and in in march of 92 we got we started getting together and we ended up writing what ended up becoming the dysfunctional record and when george's lynch mob broke up 
in uh, I think it was late '93, early '94, early '94 must have been must have been sometime in '94. Anyway, he uh, he just said, "Hey, maybe we should do this," and so we all got together and thought, you know what? Yeah, let's reform. So we did, and it was very exciting, and it was really fun. That reformation was really fun. The '95 tour was great. Just didn't last. Now, how did you get on, end up in the movie Rockstar? Because I think that's pretty good. I know you've done a voiceover for another thing, but how did you get into this? How did you, how did you get that into That was after Rockstar, actually. How did, how did um, you? Well, um, so I was asked to play bass as a studio musician on the music. So the music first comes together. And, you know, with a movie, oftentimes you do the music first. So um, basically, Tom Worman, who had produced... Dawkins tooth and nail record he called me up and he said hey you know I'm doing this movie thing and you know I need a bass player to come in and be on the sessions I was like yeah I'd love to do it so I came in to play bass on the sessions um and what happened is we started setting up uh and rehearsing like a band uh with Zach and Jason who were already going to be in the movie and the director would come down you know we rehearsed for a couple weeks and after I want to say a few days maybe of rehearsing um, the director, you know, we took a break and the director said, Hey Jeff, can I speak to you for a second? Cause I was already kind of made being the musical director. I was kind of falling into place as the musical director for the movie. Um, so he said, he goes, I love this vibe. This is what I want. This is, this feels like a real band to me, you know, cause we're, we're real guys, you know? <laughs> um, but, but he loved the interplay and he loved how we worked. And generally in a band, I, I I'm, I kind of fall into the musical director role more often than not. And I did in that situation. So I was kind of part of the whole collaborative process going on. Um, And he just liked it. So he said, would you consider being in the movie? And I said, let me think about it. Yes. (laughs) One of those. Um, So I, you know, I had to go read lines and audition, you know, like, like actors do. Um, And then I got the part. So it was great. What is it like shooting, though? Know, because you've played in front of people, and now you've done videos, and so you know the sitting and waiting, the sitting and waiting, the sitting and waiting. But what oh, is yeah. it like when you're shooting a concert scene in a movie? Because it's it's just different. You're the someone who's actually been there, and you're not used to someone starts the guitar, cut, cut. You're not used to that. How long did it take you to get used to that whole process? You get used to that pretty quick. Um but it was great because, you know, we did a month at the L.A. Sports Arena to, to, to do all the live stuff, which was really great. We did a lot of backstage stuff, too, and whatever. But um, but we were there for a month. So it kind of felt like we were doing a concert every night. It was great. And and it was funny because I remember the writer that, you know, the production writer that would happen every day. At the bottom, it would say, you know, 500 extras for the audience. Um 125 of which must be really hot women. <laughs> like, okay, for a single guy, this is not a bad gig. <laughs> now, you did voiceover, voice work for Mortal Kombat. How did that come about? Because you're, you're like a man of like 87 different hats. <laughs> yeah, no hat at the moment. Um, uh, well, because a very good friend of ours um, was a voiceover agent. She has since passed away in a very tragic accident, which still kind of makes me feel kind of choked up. But um, but she was working with our daughter, who was only three at the time, um, and uh, she was helping her do some voiceover stuff, which was really cute. Um, but anyways, 
she we were just talking one day she goes have you ever considered doing any voiceover stuff? And I said, I'd love to. In fact, I took a workshop for it in the 90s when, you know, when rock music was not looking like such a great career move. Um, so she she arranged it, and I went in and got the part. So it was great. Again, she passed away soon after that in this tragic accident, so never really followed up. But uh, what a great experience that was. I loved it. Now, what made you decide to really pursue producing? Because you produce a lot, and it's something that, you know, I'm sure, as you said, you're the musical director, and you play different things. But is producing, I mean, as because you're an established musician, musician, do you think that makes producing easier for you or more challenging for you? Oh, easier, because you have the musical knowledge and experience, which is a big part of producing, <laughs> really big part. Um I've always been drawn to producing. I mean, from the earliest days, I was fascinated with recording studios. And, you know, in the early docking days, when we were working with, you know, guys like Jeff Workman and Tom Worman, I would I would be the one that would stay late and, you know, hang out and watch everything going on and, you know, be as much a part of it. And and honestly, on the on the first docking record I did, which was Tooth and Nail, Tom Worman and and Don didn't really get along that well. They didn't really have much of a working chemistry. So after after Tom tried to do a couple of the vocals with Don, he just said, "You should do them. You you seem to work better with him." So Tom didn't really hang out for the so most of the vocals on Tooth and Nail, I kind of produced him. I mean, you know, with Don singing, of course, but I mean, we we kind of did that, um, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved the whole process. Um, and it's just, I mean, I was the I was the kid that at 16 years old, I was, you know, recording something on a cassette machine, and then I'd take another cassette machine and record onto that, and, you know, I was one of those. I, I'm, I'm a geek. <laughs> give me give me a, a, one of your highlights from your time at Dokken, and then give me one of your highlights from the times in Farner, because, you know, you've had, you've had that some really good highlights and a good story, and I always love to hear that kind of stuff. All right. Well, uh, highlights with Dokken, you know, I, I got to say, the highlight with Dokken is all the people that we got to work with. We got to work with so many incredible people. I mean, number one, our managers were Cliff Bernstein and Peter Mensch, who have gone on to, you know, Metallica, you know, you name it, they, they, Madonna. I mean, they're, they're just incredible managers. And they were very hands-off on the personal side, but it was really good to work with them and see how their business instincts work because I think that was very, very invaluable. But then, you know, we worked with... Roy Thomas Baker, Jeff Workman, Tom Worman, Neil Kernan, Michael Wagner, Wynn Davis. We worked with, you know, all these incredible people. Um, and that was just such an education. And all the shows we got to play, the people we got to open up for. I mean, we, we opened up for everybody, from Aerosmith to ACDC to Crocus to, you know, you name it. We opened for them, Judas Priest, you know. And when you get that kind of exposure to things, you just can't help but learn a lot. And I think we did. And how about with Farner? What has been some of the great experiences you've had? Because it's a great band. Well, one highlight that comes to mind is, you know, we got to play, we got to open for Led Zeppelin at the one show that they did in 2007 at the O2 Arena in London, at, you know, as the tribute to Ahmed Erdogan, who had just passed away. Um, that was a real high. Because the excitement for that show is kind of unlike anything I've ever experienced. You know, I don't know if you remember, but there was the Internet actually went down when the tickets went on sale because it was 22, 23 million people trying to get 20,000 tickets. It was it was insane. And the Internet actually shut down. 
And it was just such a great night. I mean, and Led Zeppelin were just, I mean, so mesmerizing that night. It was, it was really incredible. And I was so proud of Jason. I mean, he just did amazing. Uh, and I know how stressful that was and how nervous he was beforehand and, um, but how incredible he did. And it was just, um, that was a real magical night. So that, that's, that's just a real highlight that stands out to me. Who in your career have you met that has just blown you away? That you sat there and were like, oh my God, I'm sitting here talking. I mean, not just like saying hi, but like had a conversation with her, spent time with. Who in your, who have you met that have just really, you sit there and go, wow, this, I'm for real. I'm... Um, well, you know, I've met a lot of people who I've thought that about. I mean, like, like for instance, at, at that O2 Arena show, I got to meet Bill Wyman. Uh, Mick, Mick Jones knew him, and so Bill Wyman was kind of the musical arranger for that night because there was a bunch of jam bands as well. So I got to meet Bill Wyman, who was just this sweet, down-to-earth guy and, you know, really easy to talk to. So that kind of, it kind of blew my mind at how easygoing he was. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't expect him to be some aggro dude or anything, but he was just so nice and pleasant and all about the music. And so that was one thing. Um, I have met Ringo Starr before, which it's a long story, but let, let me just say that. That's tell, very, me, very tell, me, tell me the story. I want to hear it. Well, you know, it involves AA, which you're supposed to kind of respect other okay. people's. I, I mean, I think Ringo is well known as being sober, so I not blowing his anonymity, but let's just say we've met several times in that setting, and I'm impressed with him as a person, um, how easygoing he was, even got some Beatles stories out of him, which is incredible. Um, he's been to my house, which was kind of cool. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, anyways, just, just saying, really cool. Now, when the tour ends... What are you going to do? I mean, I know, are you, are you still working with Black Swan? Or are you going to produce? Or what's, what's going to go on when this tour ends? And are you going to end up saying, hey, you know what? Me and Joe and Dean all have time. We'll go and tour as Revolution Saints. Well, we are, I'm hoping that some of that can happen. You know, with End Machine, Black Swan, and Revolution Saints, I'm, I'm hoping that with more time, it's going to be more possible. And I think it may be. Um, but, you know, yes, I'm going to... I love the recording studio. So as much producing as I can do, the the more producing, the better. Um, and then from there, yeah, let's see what, what happens with the projects. I mean, again, you know, it's financial that makes it so difficult to tour some of these bands. But if I have more time, maybe we can have an extended period where we can come up with the finances through doing enough shows to make it work. So we'll see. How has the record industry changed in your eyes? Because you've been around, you know, in the early days, you know, with the doc and stuff. How has it changed as, as an artist, as a producer? Because you see both ends. How has it changed? Well, as far as the music business goes, think, thinking back, like, for instance, you know, Dawkins did not make it right away. Like I said, we were a slow build. Breaking the Chains only sold 125,000 records at the time. It's since gone platinum but um at the time it only sold 125,000 records and you know this is when rat and motley crew are selling millions so we feel like a complete failure you know so we go in then we're going to make tooth and nail and you know we thought we made a really strong record and that at the time only sold 350,000 records so we're thinking okay we're building but you know we want to 
we want to get big here, you know. Then we do under lock and key, and that sold. That did finally go gold. So we're we're making it slowly but surely. Um, but uh, it was a it was a very very slow build. And the reason we could do that is because we had a record company that believed in us. We had a guy by the name of Mike Bone, who was the vice president of Electra Records, has gone on to be president of a lot of records since retired, but just a an amazing old school record guy. Believed in the music knew the music, understood the music. And I'll tell you, Mike Bone, he used to have a ponytail. And he said, if Breaking the Chains doesn't go gold, I'm going to cut my ponytail. And he did. That's dedication. <laughs> that's the kind of stuff That's the kind of stuff that I don't think baby bands get very often today. Um, so how has the music business changed? It's the infrastructure. It's completely different. Music, they, it was run by music people who believed in music. Yes, there was corporations. Yes, there was boardroom conversations and all that kind of thing. But less so than now. And there was still music people who could run interference and make sure that the music still held up. Today, it's a whole different story. You know, bands like us, you know, we're on Frontiers Records, who is the label that does understand. But you're not going to put us on Warner Brothers or Sony or anything like that and expect to get any treatment today. Um, you know, Beyonce gets well-treated, but, you know, all the others, not so sure. So the music business has lost its the infrastructure that provides a real fertile environment for creative new bands. Um, hopefully that'll change over time. Hopefully the Internet will democratize that a bit. Um, but the, the, monetar the monetizing uh, has not been figured out yet. And that has to be that has to happen. And hopefully over the next couple of years, monetizing the Internet and figuring out how to promote bands in a way that promotes the music and not just commercial interests. Hopefully somebody does that. And I think they will over time, but I think it's going to take some time. Now, the music industry has changed. How has we talked about your writing? How has your writing style changed through the years as you've matured and we grow and we all how has have you seen it? Have you noticed the change? I mean, I mean, I hope I'm getting better. <laughs> That's all I can say. Um, I don't know, because you're always kind of, you're always out to write the best song you can. So in a sense, when that's always the goal, that, that doesn't change. So I think you maybe you start to focus in more on lyrics after a while. Uh, maybe you start to get more in touch with lyrics that sound authentic as opposed to things that, don't um music that tugs the heartstrings and music that just kind of goes by you know it, it's all those things it's learning how to utilize and implement all those things um and just get better at it so i couldn't tell you how i've changed other than i think i'm just trying to get better two two more questions one's a two-part one's a two-parter one what is your what was your favorite docking song to play and then the second part of that what's your favorite foreigner song to play Favorite docking song. I, I don't know if there necessarily is one, but I, I guess if there was anything, it'd be the song It's Not Love. Because um, we would we would kind of stretch that out and we'd do some jamming. And it was one point where I actually had a bass solo on it, which is kind of ridiculous to think of. But, um, but uh, you know, it was loose enough and open enough that we would go into some interesting territory. And, and one thing, I used to love jamming with docking. And... And in fact, that's one of the things a lot of people don't realize. We actually we had a period in the '90s when we were when we had reformed, 
where we would do a song every night where we would just improvise. We would just we would just say, George, just start doing a riff, and we'd just start doing it, and Don would start making stuff up. It was so fun, and it was one of the few, I mean, it was, it was a point when we were really gelling as a group. I wish people knew about that and got to experience that more with Dokken because that was when our chemistry really worked, when we listened to each other and it was all about the music. And um, we used to do a lot of that. And and because It's Not Love sort of had that element to it, that's probably my favorite Dokken song to play. With Foreigner, it's really hard to tell because I love so many of the songs um, and they're kind of all equally as great to play. I mean, Jukebox Hero, we do a lot of jamming on, so that's probably, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a bass player. I like to jam, so, you know, that's probably something. But, I mean, I love Waiting for a Girl Like You as a song. And, you know, I mean, there's just so many. It's hard to say. Final question. What is your take, and be honest, on bass solos? You mentioned earlier. What do you, I mean, what to you, first of all, do you love them? And then what makes a good bass solo? And then do you just sit there and start going and go, Something hits in your mind, you go another direction. Because I've always wondered, because bass solos are so entertaining. Because you always remember the bass. I always say at the beginning of a um, "Sweet Emotion" by Aerosmith, you, you you know that that it sticks in your head, and you're like, and you hear it. But what is it? What bass solos? Give me your give me your rant or take on bass solos. Well, to me, the greatest bass soloist of all times by far is Jacob Pastorius, and I love his work, and he's amazing. I mean, it's a whole other league from what I am, so, you know, I, I, I can't, I don't, I don't put myself even remotely in that category, but, um, but, but, you know, you got your Billy Sheehan's out there and your John Alderettis who are really incredible players, and, you know, Billy is a really well-rounded amazing bass player and yes he can solo but yes he can just play and groove and do all that too so you know billy's pretty incredible to watch and and you know i'll, t I'll take a billy sheehan bass solo any day um but what makes a great bass solo to me is just interesting notes and well played and well performed you know but how do that. you pull it off do you love doing a bass solo um i enjoy it when it's yeah, like I used to enjoy the It's Not Love one because it kind of worked and I, I could do stuff that I like. But I put it this way. I don't feel the need to do a bass solo. It's not something I because to me, bass is a supportive instrument. Um, and I'm not like that great a soloist that I have that much to say as a bass soloist because I kind of don't care. Um, but. But yeah, of course it's fun to do it when there's a little moment to do it, sure. Well, I'm glad you took the time. I mean, it must, it's, I look at you and you're such an exciting time with the album coming out and the tour. And now, how can people get in touch with you? How, what's your social media? Well, uh, The Real Jeff Pilsen for Instagram. Uh, Jeff Pilsen fan page is my Facebook fan page. Um, and uh, I believe you can write Jeff at jeffpilsen.com. Uh, and I'll, and I'll get that email. Um, but the other thing too is, you know, I, I teach a virtual meditation class. Tell me about that. Generally it's on Mondays, uh, 8 PM Eastern, 5 PM Pacific. Sometimes when I'm on the road, I have to shift it around. Um, but if you go to yoga at hot for yoga, scb.com, that's where you can find out how to take the virtual class. And I'd love to have people take the virtual meditation class. Just one more question now. One more question. What got you into the yoga and meditation? Because I know a gentleman who's an insurance salesman who just retired. And he's been doing, he was a chiropractor originally. And he just started, he teaches yoga. And he's the most peaceful cat. What got you into that whole meditation and yoga? 
Well, what originally got me into it, uh, actually, I'll never forget this. This was this was 40 some years ago, 40, probably, probably 45 years ago. Um, I would. Yeah, at least 45 years ago. I was living with a friend of mine. I was at home doing push-ups one day while he was gone and something happened and I was on, I, I fell down on the floor and I couldn't move for three hours until he got home. And in that three hours, I remember telling myself, I'm 20 years old. Why is this happening? Um, and then, and what occurred to me was, was that somebody had mentioned that yoga could be really helpful. So as soon as I was mobile again, which I don't know how long that took, um, I remember going to a bookstore and I ended up picking up Richard Hittleman's 30-day yoga meditation. And I started doing it that day and I have not stopped since. It was, it changed my life. Uh, it not only gave me focus and peace of mind, but I mean, I, my body started getting in better shape and I started having more energy and um, everything improved as a result of it. So um, I, it's just something that I find is a complete necessity now. And for me, it's very, very invaluable. That's awesome, people. So, good people, you know what you should do? You should listen to Dokken, do some yoga, then go to a Farner concert. That's where you go. Yeah. And go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 950 episodes. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Uh, Twitter, at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time. Can I get